Good morning. It's good to see everybody today. Today's a fun day for us with having our international students here with us. It's been a great time to have them be our guests and just a, a great time to have some hospitality and friendship uh, with some of our friends uh, from the other side of the world. It's been a great time, but today is also Baptism Sunday. And uh, I always love these Sundays because there are those of us who have already decided that we're going to make this decision, and there are those of us that are going to spontaneously decide to make that decision today. And I always want to encourage you, anytime we have baptisms here, we've always got extra t-shirts and shorts, and uh, we can do it with you as well. So uh, we, we just had a great baptism uh, time, uh, first service, and uh, just it was incredible. It was just fun. So you'll get to celebrate that at the end of the service. So if you've got your Bibles, I want to encourage you to go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 4. Sorry if I'm a little giddy today. When you do baptisms on Sunday mornings, it's a blast. And so uh, I know you didn't get to have Super Bowl last hour, but I did. So it was kind of fun. So anyway, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I feel like a little kid in a candy shop. I got a message I got to preach. So here we go. Um, We've been in this, this uh, series called Jesus Seven Portraits, and we've been trying to give some sort of glimpse of who Jesus is beyond just being Savior or being Lord or a great teacher, or what, but trying to really unpack that specifically. And today, we want to talk about how Jesus is a, a prophet. But when we wanted to think about this this week, we started thinking about uh, things of significant impact or influence or affluence that when you see them or experience them, they're kind of underwhelming, okay? So I want you to think about that. There are certain things in our, our culture and in our world that may seem uh, significant in their influence or affluence or even their size. You expect them to be massive and they're much smaller than what you think. Let me give you an example. I'm gonna give you a few examples, but let's start with this one. When you think of the portrait, the Mona Lisa, I kind of think of something that sits on a wall that you know people are going to see, and it's, it's a significant shape and size to where people are caught up in the magnitude of this portrait. But truth be known, here's a portrait for you. The Mona Lisa is only two feet nine inches by one foot nine inches, something that would sit on your mantle off to the side. And so when you go somewhere to see it and it's kind of like this, it doesn't seem as impressive as being one of the great art pieces of all time, does it? Kind of underwhelming. Or you think about the Gettysburg Address, one of the most influential speeches of our time, right? It's only about 272 words long or roughly two paragraphs. Much smaller than what you think. Or you think about the significance of being the president of the United States. We would, we would consider that the most powerful person in all the world. Great influence, but not great affluence. Did you know the president of the United States only makes $400,000 a year? And some of you would say, only $400,000. Well, come on now, you know. He's, it's not as if our president, you know. Anyway, we'll go off on that one. But if you were, if you were... Uh, the CEO of a discount store, say Big Lots, you would score 495 on the world's rich list or, or the, the uh, Forbes 500, uh, like David Campus. Man, I, my tongue is just killing me today, okay? Thank you for being gracious today. Or Plymouth Rock, the rock that the pilgrims landed on. Did you know it's just a small stone that they put 1620 on a on a grid out in front of it, so you know that that's what that rock is, not very large. Or the London Bridge, the one that's falling down, the one of nursery rhyme fame, really isn't even in London anymore. It's actually in Lake Havasu, Arizona. 
It's interesting because there are things in our culture that seem to be great in significance, and so you assume it's great in size, but they are oftentimes very simplistic, very small maybe even in stature. And we want to look at a passage today that is much smaller than what you think. It's actually Jesus's first message, his first sermon in Luke chapter 4. Now, some of you are probably going, well, Danny, how, how long was your first message? Thank you for asking. My first message that I ever preached was 11 minutes long. And some people are like, I hope that day is today. I hope that day is today. Right? Yeah, I learned to preach a little longer than that. Matter of fact, I got invited to speak at CIY my first time, uh, which is a summer conference that our students go to. And my first sermon at this youth conference, I spoke for an hour and 20 minutes. It's not that day either, okay? So it's not an hour and 20 minutes. But I didn't even break the record for the longest message at that conference. So I, I, maybe I need to put some work in. We'll see what happens. But Jesus preaches a message that is uh, significant because he's beginning to tell truth to the nation of Israel. It's actually a prophetic word that is being fulfilled in the moment in which he speaks. And what we know about prophets are this, that prophets were sent by God to bring truth that often offended the recipients. Sometimes we talk about prophets and most of us want to talk about fortune telling or what it's going to be like in the future. But the reality is throughout scripture that when a prophet came to speak, they came to speak the truth of God so that people would correct, confront, be convicted, conform to Christ's likeness. It was, it was intended to change who we are. And oftentimes when we talk about Jesus, we remind everyone that Jesus came full of truth and grace. And oftentimes when I preach, I really like to preach about grace. I'm overwhelmed by grace. I love the grace of Jesus. I love the fact that we are all sinners, but Christ gave his life for us. And it's not about our performance. It's not about our, the name on the back of our jersey or the money in our wallet, but it's, it's a free gift from God for everyone. I love those kind of messages. But if I was also to be transparent, sometimes I don't preach a whole lot of the, the truth messages. Not that we lie, but I mean truth as in the sense of a confrontation or a conviction or pressing into something that's overly difficult to swallow. I like to preach grace. But Jesus came full of truth and grace. So today we're going to look at a passage that is somewhat confrontational and how we should handle that. What should happen when we're confronted by Jesus and his character and his words and how we might want to adjust our lives in the midst of that? Here's what it says in Luke chapter 4. This is where we'll be reading from today in Luke 14. This is how it begins. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everybody praised him. Let's pause there for a second. So here's what's happening. Jesus has actually just got done spending 30 days in the wilderness, 40 days in the wilderness, excuse me, and he's gone through a time of fasting and preparation before God. He's gone through a time of trials and temptation. Literally, the passage talks about how the adversary, the devil, comes in and tempts him for pride and power and all some, some of the deepest portions of his life. And after this refinement period, after this kind of iron sharpening iron, after this internal battle, publicly displayed, Jesus comes out of the wilderness and begins his teaching ministry. And as he's starting to teach, crowds are beginning to follow him. Why? Because the presence of God, the Holy Spirit is moving in him in ways that it's impacting not only his life, but the world around him. Here's where it goes on. It says this, he went to Nazareth, 
where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was the custom. He stood up and read, and the scroll of, uh, the, and the, scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found his place where it is written. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom from the, for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, and, and to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, today this scripture is fulfilled in your, within your hearing, in your hearing. All spoke well of him. They were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't that Joseph's son, though? They asked. So you read a passage like this, and, and for most of us, this kind of just is like waters, water off a duck's back. We hear it, we ingest it, and we kind of go, okay, so, so what's the ordeal with this? Well, Jesus has returned home. The Holy Spirit is moving in his life. He's anointed him or appointed him or set him out for a new task, a new direction. This is now the ministry of Jesus coming into full speed, fruition in front of all the people around him. He has a teaching ministry where he's going into the synagogues, where he's reading, he's sharing scripture. He's giving insight to it all. But today he comes to his home. We'll call it a church. A synagogue is a worship place for the Hebrews, for the nation of Israel. And they've come to this worship gathering because Jesus, of course, is Jewish. And he reads this scripture openly in front of them. And he just says, hey, what we've just read, what we've just experienced it's being fulfilled in front of you. It'd be somewhat of a, a mic drop moment, if you will, okay? Because for the nation of Israel, they're anticipating this Savior, this Messiah. They're expecting someone to come and bring in this new kingdom. And so when Jesus says this is being fulfilled with you, they're hearing the words of the prophet Isaiah, who had originally said this. And he was speaking to a new reality that God was going to bring into the earth, that this Messiah would be one who would, who would bring uh, good news to the poor, proclaim freedom to prisoners, recovery of sight to the blind, the set the oppressed free, that there would be this justice movement, this compassion movement, this love movement that would free us from the bondages of the things of this world. And we would find new life, real life in him. Jesus picks a specific passage. Now, nothing of this passage says that, you know, he gave a wink to the attendant. He passed him his favorite one. It just says Jesus shows up. He gets handed Isaiah. And from Isaiah, he knows this word. He knows this passage. He opens it up and goes, this is what everybody needs to hear today. And he reads it, declares it, fulfills a prophet's word by inserting himself as the prophet. Now, understand this. Before this, everybody's pretty excited about everything that Jesus has to say, but he's gone home. You know, they, they saw him grow up in their neighborhood, right? They saw him playing with their kids. Seemed like a normal kid, but Messiah, right? I mean, God in flesh, Savior of the world, one to bring freedom inside and all these. That's what he is. That's who he is. 
But what Jesus is ushering in is, is trying to, re- to share the reflection of God's heart before his people. That this has always been the heart of God. To let the world know that there is freedom. Freedom found in a relationship with God. And it should be good news, but it's not. It rubs them the wrong way. It rubs them in the wrong direction. And we begin to realize more than anything else, this one big idea that Jesus flips our understanding of the world right side up. Every prophet comes with the intention to make a correction, not for himself, but for the people and on the behalf of God. So Jesus is not saying this for his own public benefit. He's not saying this for his own popularity. He's saying this because God has ordained this. This is being fulfilled. We can now be invited into what God has been intending for all time, and that's the restoration of his creation. From the beginning of humanity, we understand that sin has infiltrated our world. It broke the way life was intended. It brought calamity. It brought sickness. It brought death. It brought oppression. So now Jesus comes in and says, here it is to be fulfilled. And the things that have been broken are now about to be restored. But they don't receive it well. And so the passage goes on and says this. This is where Jesus decides to go prophetic. Listen to what it says. Jesus says to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself, and you will tell me, Do here in your hometown what we have heard what you did in Capernaum. Okay, time out here. So Jesus sits down after reading this out loud. He's anticipating that this prophetic word that's being fulfilled, that hope is now realized, love is now manifested, peace is about to be entering the world through Jesus, his death, his burial, his resurrection, but they're not, they're not having any of it. So he, like in the midst of a rap battle, grabs the mic and says to them before they say anything to him, he says, okay, you're probably going to quote this to me. Physician, go heal yourself. Or if you're playing basketball, it's like this. Um, Create your own shot. Do your own thing. If you're so great, do it yourself. Jesus calls that out and then goes on to say that maybe what they're going to say is they're going to say, oh, why don't you do some of the cool things you did in the other towns? Everybody else seems to like you. And Jesus is not writing this as a sense of sarcasm or a sense of humor. Jesus is speaking into the room that he knows is not rebelling against his words, but rebelling against the truth of God. He's calling out the conditions of their hearts. He's calling out the hardening of their minds. He's calling out the blindness of their eyes, that they see things through their eyes and they don't see the truth in front of them. And so he turns it up a little bit more. He says, truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of those widows, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed. Only Naaman, the Syrian. Listen to this. 
all the people in the synagogue, the worship area, the church, okay? Imagine he's preaching this message. He's giving this truth. Here's what happens. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up. They drove him out of town. They took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. They were calling for his death. Okay, right? But I love this verse. But he, meaning Jesus, Walked right through them, right through the crowd, and he went on his way. I think that's funny, don't you? I mean, no, nobody really, nowhere in scripture does it really describe what Jesus did. I mean, did Jesus see these guys rushing at him, pushing him, pushing him, getting him up to the top of the hill? And then all of a sudden, Jesus like, enough of this. And they split, you know, and he just kind of walked down out of the way and went on his own. Or did Jesus kind of zigzag through and nobody could touch him? And he was kind of like, kind of like the wind. Or I, I don't know what it is, but it, 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 it just makes me laugh in this moment because people are trying to shut Jesus up. They don't want to hear what he has to say. They don't want to respond to his truth. They just want it stopped. And so they go to push it out to kill it. What's so offensive? Because Jesus says, you know what? We, we all experienced a famine. Do you remember that? Three and a half years, the, no rain came. Nothing to produce the crops that we needed. Were your neighbors hungry? My neighbors were hungry, yeah. Your, your community was struggling? My, my community was struggling. Did God send a prophet to us to help us? The room would have said, no. He went to another place to a widow elsewhere and helped her. Jesus says, whoa, what about leprosy? Leprosy is just, is taking over communities. I, I've had a neighbor who's been struck by leprosy. And do you have a neighbor that's been struck by leprosy? Yeah, did, did they get healing? Did mine? No, no. You know, you know who got healing? Some, some military guy over in another country got healing. And what's being said in that moment is that in the hurt and the struggle in the world, when God's people were not receptive to the prophets of the day, God helped others. Why? Because God was spiteful? Because God, No. Because God was trying to point to the world that this good news, this gospel, this blessing of all people was intended for all people. But sometimes the people of God, we just, we just don't listen. And so this history lesson begins to strike chords in us that we don't understand. We begin to push. We begin to rebel. We, begin to, we just want it away from us. And it can be any kind of teaching. It can be any kind of truth. But there are parts in our lives as Christ followers where we hear things, but we don't respond to things. Well, let me say it this way. I think many of us, when we look at this, we... We're looking, at, we're looking at this from our own eyes and we're saying, okay, that's them. That's their struggle. But how many times, how many times does God begin to confront us and we pass it off for something else? I think what Jesus is beginning to do is beginning to, to call out some applications that we all see in our lives that are real time for us as well. For instance, like this. When it comes to a prophet speaking into our world, that you can be so familiar with Jesus that you're, not, and that you're not fired up for Jesus. You're so familiar with Jesus that you're no longer fired up for Jesus. Remember when some of us came to faith, how excited we were? 
We are so thankful for the forgiveness of sins. We are so overwhelmed by God's love. We, matter of fact, we used to share it with our friends. We, we didn't have all the answers. We didn't, we didn't understand everything that was going on, but we knew God was real to us, and we began to share that. And then, you know, for some of us, we, we graduated high school. We went to college. We got smart. We ended up, you know, we found a spouse. We bought a house. We started having children. And all of a sudden, we realized that the idealism of God's love and us changing the world got put off to the side of now we got bills to pay. We got things to do, kids' soccer to be a part of. And all of a sudden, church is something we do rather than something we are. And what happens is the familiarity of understanding that God is sending his son, his Messiah, that the world will be changed and transformed. It's going to be renewed and brought back together. God has come and knock on the hearts of the Israelites over and over and over again. And many times they would just push them away and push them away until life got too hard and they eventually just repented or threw their hands in the air. But Jesus stands hoping that they're going to join him and instead they repulse themselves towards him. So maybe we need to challenge ourselves. When we get confronted by scripture, maybe we need to respond in a way that's more appropriate. Or like this. If Jesus upsets our preferences, let's push for those, our preferences. Let's push those off the cliff, not Jesus. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say something here that might be a little challenging, so hopefully you'll laugh for a second. But let me, let me just say this. We live in a world of tweetable comments and celebrity preaching, okay? And I know by the sheer, sheer size of our building, sometimes that happens to us, the sheer size of our group and the way we do things. But there's a weird thing that Christians do right now that drives me crazy in some ways, and you may do this, okay? Andy Stanley calls this Christian mooing. Do you know what I mean by Christian mooing? When somebody says something profound from stage and Christians go, mmm, right, you know? Some of you do that, don't you, right? We love a good word. We love how it makes our heart shake. And what happens in church culture today, somebody says something powerful, preaches a passionate sermon, gets real convicting, and the whole congregation just, mmm, right? Moves. But we're not changed very often. Let me tell you what, what should be happening. I, I, I'm not offended if you moo, but here's what happens. Here's what should be happening in our lives. If, if the truth of Jesus begins to step on our toes and calls us to live differently, we should live differently. If the truth of Jesus calls out our sin, we don't just stick our hand in the air and say, yep, I'm a sinner. We run from it. If the truth of Jesus commands us to surrender different places of our lives, whether it be our time or our job or our money or our power or our sexuality or our circumstances, we should surrender those things back to God. If the, church, if the truth of Jesus calls churches to reach out, the people of God to reach out, we shouldn't be the kind of people that go, well, you know, I've just got too much on my schedule. Well, I'm just too busy for this. We should confront the very things that stop us from reaching and serving the world around us. And if Jesus confronts even our preferences of how we express our faith, whether it be in the way that we worship or the music or the lights or whatever it may be, we should abandon our preferences. We should embrace the mission of God's church 
but not abandon our churches. And oftentimes, when tough stuff comes our direction, we push Jesus out rather than embrace what Jesus says to our lives. When we live lives that tend to follow a preference more than the words of a prophet, God sends us a prophet because we need a prophet. We need confronted. He did that for for the nation of Israel through Hosea. Hosea 11 says, My people are determined to turn from me, even though they call me God most high. I will know by no means, by no means, exalt them. Psalm 62, verse 4, the second half says, With their mouths they bless, but with their hearts they curse. Receiving a prophet is as much to do with the condition of your heart as it is the condition of your ears. And as a church, we need to grow at this. I need to grow at this. We all need to grow at this. We want to do more than just feel convicted or more than just feel confronted. We want to be conformed. We want to recognize that when Jesus speaks into our life, when God speaks truth into our lives, that it mandates an obedient heart, a changed mind, and an impacted life. The truth matter is many of us, we just hope that grace, grace will let us get away another day to live the life we know we shouldn't. That's why it reminds us that a prophet, a prophet is only effective with listening ears, with listening ears and responsive hearts. You know, in just a moment, we're going to get ready to respond and every service, we, we provide the opportunity where you can, you can come to the, to the benches up front. We use them like altars. We encourage you to come and offer your heart, your mind, your life to, to pray a prayer of repentance, a, a prayer of thanksgiving, a prayer uh, of just searching for God. Whatever it may be, we offer that for us to respond back to God. We also set up tables that have bread and juice. They remind us that Jesus Christ, his body was broken. His blood was shed. The bread represents his body. The juice represents his blood. And we say all who have a relationship with Jesus should come to the table and celebrate the gift of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of sins, our life everlasting. We have offering boxes that we have around the room so that we can respond not only in decisions that we make, prayer requests that we want to submit, but to invite people to walk with us, to take a journey with us of obedience, to help us become who God is convicting us to become. And we use them to to give our offering, our finances, to help fuel the ministry of what God's doing in our church. And you can either give there or you can give by using the app or using the giving uh, kiosks out front. We encourage everybody to respond in some sort of way every weekend. But what we're asking for is not simply just a conviction of heart. We're not just asking for people to, to have open ears but never get their hands dirty, to have listening ears and live out the best intentions you can. We're not asking people to have uh, listening ears and, and have all the complete understanding put together in their life or have all the answers put together and, and never doubt again. What the prophet is asking for us to have are listening ears and a responsive heart that when we hear the truth of God, 
we would respond to his calling. So let's, let's move to our time of response. We're going to move to our time of response right now. So today we, we called it Baptism Sunday because there have been people who have been talking with us about how a prophet has been speaking into their lives, how Jesus has been confronting their will, their way to be surrendered back to God, that they might conform to the very likeness that Christ has called us to live out. And there may be some guests in the room that when we talk about things like this, this is, this is foreign to you. This is, this is new conversation to you. This, this idea that God himself would show up as a human being, God in flesh, that he would surrender himself, give up his power, his privilege, his influence, so there might be a tangible expression, real time, real life, a historic moment that can be accounted for where Jesus came and lived we're reminded that Jesus lived a blameless life. Because of that, he was able to pay for our sins. He was the blameless one that took our sins on. Because of that, he paid a price through the death, the burial, and his resurrection. He paid the price that we can all have a forgiveness of sins and have life everlasting. What happens after the experience where Jesus dies, is buried, and rose again is Jesus begins to appear to different people, some of his close followers, some individuals who followed around, some of his disciples. But at the end of his time here on earth, he actually commissions people to, to go, to make followers, students, disciples, of this way of living, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that he commanded. And then you open the book of Acts, and the book of Acts is this conversation about how the actions of the church first played out. And Jesus ascends to the right hand of God. He returns. And these apostles, these followers, they go to this room. They're praying, they're waiting. They've been promised that they will be witnesses to Jerusalem and Judea and throughout all the earth, that there's going to be this movement. God has told them this is what's going to happen. And while they're praying, there's this wind that blows in. Something like tongues of fire show up on their head. It's, it's describing this, this moment of God's presence moving in a new way. In the church, we call this Pentecost. It is the birth of the early church. And it mobilizes these listening ears and receptive hearts to move out onto a balcony and then begin speaking to a crowd that's thousands of people, an open marketplace, if you will. It would be like showing up on the University of Illinois' campus, coming out of their frat house, opening their windows, and just talking about the reality of what's happened because they've known God. They've experienced the real life of Jesus. And what happens is this crowd listens attentively. A man by the name of Peter begins to grab the mic, so to speak. And he starts with this conversation of a movement of the Holy Spirit. Read it. It sounds very similar to some of the words that we're saying in that second song. He says, young men, old men, young women, older women, they're going to have dreams. They're going to have visions. 
They're going to see a new way of life, a new way of living. And he begins to talk about this movement of the spirit that begins to be encapsulated in every believer. But in the midst of this message, Peter begins to speak to the cultural issue of the day. And one of the cultural issues of the day was there was this man who lost his life, who many thought maybe was just a, a political traitor. Some thought he was some sort of criminal and that's why he died. But many questioned, could he have been God? And in the quickening of the spirit, in the movement of God's power, Peter steps up to, to declare, you're expecting the message of grace, right? God loves everybody. God forgives everybody. God cares for everybody. Peter says this, Jesus, who is both Lord and Messiah, you crucified. Boy, that's a game changer, right? I wasn't even there. I mean, I, I've just heard about this. You, you know what You know what gets said that happens in this environment? Apparently, this moment of truth, this hard piece to swallow, that our sins put Jesus on the cross, not some illicit political group of Jewish people or Roman government. Our sins convicted Jesus to the cross. It wasn't the devil that betrayed Jesus. It was, it was one amongst his insider 12 and all of us who betrayed him. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and their receptive hearts and their open ears, they leaned in. And so Peter prompts him, Peter prompts them to respond. And he shares a promise that's for all generations. He says this, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You can imagine at that day, people could have easily pushed this away. Those crazy kids. Matter of fact, they got accused of being drunk, right? Only drunk people do this kind of crazy stuff. And, but the crowd that heard experienced a movement of God, not only from the men in the balcony, but in their own hearts. The truth and the reality that we need a Savior, that we need a Lord, that our sins, our debt has been the payment that caused the death of Jesus, convicted them. And you know what it says? They responded. One was baptized. Three or four was baptized. Five or six, 10, 50, 100, 1,000. Over 3,000 people responded to a message of Jesus Christ, your Lord and Messiah, whom you crucified. And in their heart of hearts, in the recesses of their mind, they said, it's true. It's true. And then they responded. 
There are some of you in this room that have already planned that you're going to be baptized today, and I want to encourage you. In just a few moments, we're going to move, but there's, there's some of you in this room that have said, I didn't bring any stuff with me here. I, I don't have any clothes. I don't have, some of you are saying, well, I'm a big guy. I don't have any clothes to wear. Hey, I brought my wardrobe, so you can wear my, I'm sure will fit, right? You know what I'm saying? Some of you are saying, well, you know, I, I kind of grew up with a little different perspective, a little bit of tradition on, uh, on baptism. Can, can I just share this? That when you read through the annals of Acts, when you read through the moving of God's spirit, you see people who recognize the truth of Jesus, his death, his burial, and resurrection, and their response to that truth. And maybe you've never had the chance to declare that before your friends or neighbors. Some of you are saying, well, my, my parents made that decision for me. We're not trying to deny what your parents have given. We want to say thank you. And in this response, we want to be able to say, we affirm and we declare that what my parents have committed for me, I will live in my own life. The truth that it's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that provides my forgiveness of sins and my life everlasting. And I surrender my life. I identify to that death, burial, and resurrection. And I put away the old way of living so that I may walk anew. I clothe myself in Christ so that it's no longer me that lives, but he that lives within me. It's the pledge of my clean conscience that before God, I stand and I say, God, I've given everything of my life back to you. I'm dead to sin. And now I'm alive in Christ. If you've planned to make that decision today or you haven't planned to make that decision today and want to make it with us, what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray. I'm going to walk out this aisle and I'm going to stand out in front of the fountain or the baptistry, what we have up front. You can join me. We'll get you clothes. We'll get you things that you need to do. And we're going to have a little bit of a party in the last half of our worship experience today. And we're going to celebrate as people give their life to Christ. You can, you should make that decision today. You should. Let's stand. I'm going to pray. And as soon as I pray, I'm going to walk off the stage. I'm going to walk to the back. And anybody who wants to be baptized today, join me there. You could be young. You could be old. You can, I, I, you can be who you are. You can feel like there's no forgiveness. There is forgiveness for everyone here. And so if today, if you feel prompted, if there's that, that lump in your throat, like you're just, no, it's not me, that's probably you. You need to step out. If there are some of you that are crossing your arms and pushing away, it's probably you. It's probably the day to step up. But as we get ready to sing, as people begin to move, may we respond to the movement of God in our hearts, the quickening of our minds, may we be different today. Let's pray. God, we surrender ourselves to you, everything that we are and all that we have. God, we declare that we are inadequate. We declare that we are rebellious and we are angry. We are evil. We, are, we at times, we, God, you see in our hearts and our minds and you know things of our past and our present. And God, you love us as we are. You meet us where we are, but you refuse to leave us there. And so God, as we, 
as we experience this movement of your spirit, as we experience the reality of you moving in our time, in our world, in our life right now, God, may we surrender ourselves back to you with great faith, with great trust, and may we, in and of ourselves, may we just say, God, have your way in us. Tear us apart, uh, rearrange us, mess up our lives. God, take the rebellion in our hearts that pushes against every authority, and God, break it. Take the, take the bitterness that keeps people away and breaks up our relationships and soften our hearts. Take the greed that consumes us that we chase for ourselves. Take the pride that presents ourselves higher than anybody else. Take all the things that are in us and dump them out and fill them with you. God, have your way in us for your glory, for your honor. Because of the price that Jesus paid and the power of your spirit we commit all these things to you today. Amen. I'll be at the fountain if you want to get baptized.